You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here, continuing to roll the one-man revolution forward. Once again, mercilessly punching the standard establishment narrative square in the face. And this is episode 76 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and today we're going to be yet again taking some listener email questions. But before we get to those, a few Patreon shoutouts. Thank you very much to Mark, to Rick, and to Jim for stepping up on patreon.com slash profcj to support the show on a continuing basis. I very much appreciate that. It helps me out tremendously to keep doing the show and keep improving the show. Remember, if you sign up as a patron on Patreon for the Dangerous History Podcast for any amount per episode, no matter how humble, I'll give you a shout out, a thank you by name on whatever is the next episode I record after you've signed up. And if you sign up as a as a patron there for a minimum of a dollar per episode, and please do feel free to do more if you're willing and able to do so. Two, three, five bucks an episode, hundred bucks an episode if you really want to. I'm happy to accept it. And not only will I give you a thank you by name on the next episode I make, but in addition, you'll be able to access bonus episodes that I'm putting up there more or less monthly. Just put the first one up last month will be putting the next one up uh, probably in the next week or two, you know, latter, latter part of September. And those are exclusive bonus episodes only for Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast. So I hope if you haven't already, you'll consider going over to patreon.com slash profcj to sign up to help out the show. Our first listener email today comes from Ken, and he asked the following related questions. First, what is your take on the intent behind an analysis of the wording of the Second Amendment as it pertains to gun rights in modern America from an anarchistic historian's perspective? And second, do you believe that the Bill of Rights was a good idea or unnecessary at the time they were ratified since the Constitution was already in place by then, like it or not? Thanks for the questions, Ken. In response to number one, dealing specifically with the wording and intent of the Second Amendment, I guess my initial answer is to, um, if if you really want in-depth the, the history of this, check out a book by Stephen Halbrook entitled The Founder's Second Amendment, which delves into the history and all of the, the nitty-gritty details of the actual writing and passage and inspiration and wording and all that stuff having to do with that amendment and gets into it in much more detail than I'm going to be able to hear because of time. And I'll try to remember also to link to a Tom Woods show podcast episode from about maybe a year ago he did with Halbrook where they talked about this very thing. So you can get a lot of the gist from that, that interview, I think. But 
I would say that if you want to get an understanding of the wording and intent of the Second Amendment, you have to put it in its historical context to understand the the men who wrote and ratified the Second Amendment. Where were they get, getting their ideas from? And then you can you can figure out more accurately what they meant by the words they used. So to understand this amendment, and this is the case really with much of the Bill of Rights, you have to go back into British constitutional history and you have to go back into what's sometimes called classical republicanism, classical republicanism, which is a political ideology that comes to Britain and thereby to the British colonies. It is basically like classical Greek and Roman political theory especially the the notion of citizenship being tied into service in a militia defense force and how those ideas that came from the classical world got filtered then through a lot of Renaissance thinkers, including a lot of people in Renaissance Italy, probably most famously uh, Machiavelli, and then how those ideas then filtered into the minds of a lot of educated radical Brits in the early modern period, say the century or two prior to the American Revolution, because it's these ideas that are actually animating a lot of the so-called founding fathers, especially the ones who are the more, the more radical among the founding fathers. So classical republicanism is an idea that is um, very important. A good place to get some of the background on these ideas filtering through the English constitutional experience to the colonists is there's a great book called The Costs of War, edited by John Denson, published by the Mises Institute. You can buy a physical copy of it, or you can get a a PDF of it for free, like most of the Mises Institute's books. And I'll try to remember to throw a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, in the book The Costs of War, there is a chapter by the late Samuel Francis, specifically looking at these ideas, how the experience of the controversy over things like civilian disarmament in early modern Britain, especially like in the 17th and early 18th century, how this then affected the um, the American perceptions of these issues and even the wording. So what you find when you look at sources like this is that historically, the right to be armed was often conjoined in political discourse with the duty to serve in the militia. And for a while, the English people saw militia duty as like an onerous duty, as a as a annoying responsibility. They would kind of rather shirk. England had at least part of its uh, defense forces for much of its history after the Romans left, at least part of its defense forces was always the militia. People who did other jobs as their primary careers, but who would be mo- uh, mobilized to take up arms in the case of invasion or threat or whatever. And a lot of times, like I said, this was seen as almost like an annoying duty. But then once you started to get somewhat more authoritarian rulers in England in the early modern period, people, um, especially those of a more radical political mindset, began to see that this uh, right to be armed that normally was associated with this onerous militia duty was uh, at least theoretically an important backbone of the popular ability to resist overreaching government. And again, the, um, the sort of the political ideas that transfer, transferred to England were these ideas of what's known as classical republicanism. And so by the late 17th century, meaning like 1680s, 1690s, 
time period of the Glorious Revolution and the overthrow of the Stuart monarchs, this idea was turning more and more from being seen primarily related to a duty, and, and it was turning more into the idea of a right, meaning the individual right to have weaponry. Now, the flip side, the militia, du- the militia duty side of it never really went away, but it, it became to be seen more in the context of an individual right. Because what had happened was, in the 17th century, the Stuart monarchs in particular had tried to impose a more authoritarian, absolutist type of monarchy on England than what they had traditionally had. And this provoked a backlash and provoked, you know, rebellions and civil war, and ultimately one of the Stuart kings ended up losing his head. And these Stuart monarchs, in their quest for ever greater control over their country, one of the things that they attacked was the ability of the population to be armed. They tried various schemes and laws and things to disarm the populace, none of which were terribly successful at the time. And so when the Stuart monarchy was booted out of England in the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, uh, shortly thereafter, there was an English Bill of Rights that was written. Probably not a lot of Americans know there was such a thing as the English Bill of Rights. I believe it was uh, passed in 1689. And if you want a very interesting thought experiment... Well, not really a thought experiment, analysis, I guess. Um, Go look up the English Bill of Rights. It's easy to find the full text of it online and compare it to the American Bill of Rights. And you'll see there are a lot of similarities, but there are also important noteworthy differences. And the English Bill of Rights did contain a right to be armed, but it was more limited than than the right as expressed in the American Bill of Rights. First off, the English Bill of Rights specifies the right only applies to Protestants And it also has some other qualifying language that makes it hemmed in a lot more than the American Bill of Rights. So on this subject, the English Bill of Rights says, quote, The subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense, suitable to their conditions, and as allowed by law, end quote. So you can see the qualifications not only of, it specifies Protestants, but then it says, suitable to their conditions and as allowed by law. So right there, it's like, hey, it's a right, but it's a right that's not a right. But I suppose it was better than nothing, because as far as I know, the other other countries of Europe didn't even have anything resembling that at the time. So, you know, it's another one of these things that from today, for today's perspective was, was uh, horribly flawed and limited. And obviously, if you know anything about gun control in modern Britain, has been almost completely uh, undone and emasculated. But, you know, it, it, w- it was kind of a step forward given the historical context of the late 17th century. And at the time, it actually, despite all that qualifying language, at the time, the English right to be armed in their Bill of Rights was actually interpreted pretty generously. Um, For example, in practice, at the time, even most Catholics, at least in England, now in Ireland, it was a bit of a different story, but most Catholics, even in England, actually could own weapons for personal defense. They were mostly just uh, prevented from amassing large stockpiles because the state you know, thought that if a Catholic is amassing an arsenal, that might mean they're planning something. But in general, there weren't even serious attempts to interfere with with a a Catholic Englishman, you know, owning a, a pistol or a musket or whatever, just for sort of personal defense. So it's true that this right originated with the concept of militia duty, what sometimes is called civic militarism of Republican Rome and classical Greek city states like Athens. This idea that a man's right to be a citizen in the in the old sense of the word of, 
you know, having a right to participate in politics, which not every member of the society actually had, that citizenship was intimately tied in with one's service in the militia. So it is true that that's where that right sort of grew out of. And you can look to the republicanism that is espoused by people like Machiavelli in places like his uh, discourses and his book, The Art of War. So sort of during the Renaissance, Machiavelli and, and some other people in the Italian city-states of that time period were intellectually reviving the linkages between citizenship and militia duty, between participating in politics on the one hand and participating in the defense of one's polity on the other. Another book I'll throw out there, it is by no means an easy read. I read it in grad school and it was uh, it was a piece of work, but it was a very good book. The One of the best books that links the um, the classical Republican ideology to the Anglo-American political thought of the 18th and 17th centuries is a book called The Machiavellian Moment by the historian J.G.A. Pocock, which, uh, if I remember right, I think he's from New Zealand. But anyway, it's it's a very, very good piece of intellectual history, uh, just not the lightest, easiest reading around. So anyway, I would say that the American Second Amendment reflects this evolution of the right to be armed from being purely thought of as a duty into being more of an individual right, but with the old militia duty still kind of, you know, hanging on to it or attached to it. And this was already taking place in, in Britain even before the American Revolution. And then the ideas, you know, filtered over to the American side of, of the ocean and were simply taken uh, a few steps further by the guys who wrote things like the Bill of Rights. But you can even see before the American Revolution these ideas in, um, in English law at the time. So, for example, Sir William Blackstone's multi-volume huge series, Commentaries on the Laws of England, which was published in the 1760s, um, and which is often considered to be one of the most important books to understanding English common law, talked about the right to be armed as follows. After talking about basic natural rights, Blackstone talks about auxiliary rights, which he defines as basically being rights that are what allow you to enjoy and protect your basic natural rights. So Blackstone writes, quote, But in vain would these rights be declared, ascertained, and protected by the dead letter of the laws, if the Constitution had provided no other method to secure their actual enjoyment. It has therefore established certain other auxiliary rights of the subject, which serve principally as outworks or barriers to protect and maintain inviolate the three great and primary rights of personal security, personal liberty, and private property, end quote. And then further on, elaborating these auxiliary rights, he gets to the last one, and Blackstone writes, quote, The fifth and last auxiliary right of the subject that I shall at present mention is that of having arms for their defense, suitable to their condition and degree, and, as, and such as are allowed by law and is, indeed, a public allowance under due restrictions of the natural right of resistance and self-preservation when the sanctions of society and law are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression, end quote. That's a very interesting passage to me, because on the one hand, you can see Blackston using that qualifying language of, you know, suitable to their condition and as allowed by law. In other words, acknowledging that maybe there is some legitimate uh, role for state limitation of certain arms. And I don't know how they would apply that in the 18th century in England. I don't know. I don't think 
Blackston would interpret that to mean that um, owning a musket that's equivalent to the standard issue infantry musket of the British Army at the time would be a bad thing. I don't know. Maybe he would interpret it to just mean like heavy cannons shouldn't be allowed to be owned by every every farmer. So, you know, Blackston, not a not a doctrinaire libertarian the way we would think of it today. But nonetheless, a guy who did believe in the concept of natural rights and did believe that that was supposed to be one of the guiding principles of the unwritten English Constitution and of English common law. And notice, he explicitly said that one of the reasons for this right is to protect the other rights, almost as like a last resort when the state is just, you know, going off the reservation. Again, he refers to it as the natural right of resistance and self-preservation. That's pretty, pretty radical to point that out explicitly when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. So if the government won't listen to things like your free speech and whatever, um, then you've got this, you know, I guess kind of nuclear option. And again, by the standards of the, the 18th century, this is pretty radical stuff. So basically, in a nutshell, my thoughts would be that uh, when you look at the historical context and the, the intellectual forebears that the guys who wrote the Second Amendment were clearly uh, building upon and were influenced by and their choice of words and everything, it was intended to be an individual right. Whether they intended it to be totally unrestricted or not um, is perhaps a little bit more debatable. I don't know. But clearly, uh, when you do even basic historical research into the context and everything, it's pretty clear to me that the notion that they were just talking about someone serving in the National Guard being able to have a rifle while performing guard duties is um, a silly anachronism that was made up in the 20th century in order to justify ever-increasing uh, federal gun regulations as the 20th century wore on. Now, in response to uh, Ken's second question regarding whether the Bill of Rights was a good idea at the time or whether it was perhaps unnecessary, Honestly, as an anarchist, I look at written constitutions in general, especially things like bills of rights and other documents that are designed supposedly to define rights that are supposed to be protected and thereby to limit the state and so on as being well-intentioned things, but things which the experience of several centuries of history has shown do not work, things which have failed. And it's time after over 200 years of the Bill of Rights failing utterly to restrain the federal government, to me, like, it's time to give up on the concept that it ever will. Like, how many more centuries will you need if you're somebody who still clings to the notion that uh, if you just, you know, pass one more amendment or elect one different guy, that uh, suddenly the Bill of Rights will actually, you know, be respected and, and the government will enforce it on itself, Right. Do you, how many more centuries do you need if you're someone who still believes there's hope there until you finally, you know, come to the point of view of those of us who are sort of post-constitutional, who take a more kind of Lysander Spooner view of the Constitution? You know, so that that would just be what I would say to anyone who's listening, and probably not too many of you are, but anyone listening who still is of the, you know, venerating the Constitution mindset. So it's, I would say I think that based on the knowledge they had at the time, from the perspective of the Anti-Federalists, the Bill of Rights would seem necessary in order to try to hem in this new federal government, which the Anti-Federalists had tried to prevent from being created in the first place. But then, you know, once they, once they lost that whole rigged game, and I'll probably at some point do like a mini-series on that whole, whole deal, 
Um, in many ways, the Federalists stacked the deck and rigged the game anyway. But once it was clear that they, they were going to lose the battle over ratifying the Constitution, the Anti-Federalists sort of fought a rearguard action and were able to pull out of enough of the Federalists as sort of like a concession, this notion of a Bill of Rights. And so I understand from the perspective, if you were an anti-federalist as the Constitution was getting ratified and you thought this thing was dangerous, but it was getting passed, you know, and everybody seemed to be at least acquiescing to it, that the notion of throwing in a Bill of Rights of, you know, within a, within a couple of years, adding all those amendments would make sense, especially considering they don't have the hindsight we have today to see how obviously it failed. You know, these were Enlightenment guys. I'm sure they thought if we have a properly designed and run republic and we have this document that's written very clearly to mean, you know, what it says, that, well, that should work, right? And if nothing else, I, I think the function the Bill of Rights does provide, it doesn't provide the function of restraining the government on any anything resembling a consistent basis. I mean, occasionally, occasionally they respect it. But for every one time they do, you find them constantly trampling on it, right? But the one function it does provide is the function of providing a yardstick, a ruler, something to compare the government's actual behavior in real life to, where you can say, look, here's what the Bill of Rights says, and look, here's what they actually do. And so in the, in the battle of ideas, I think the Bill of Rights has the important function of being a yardstick to show vividly just how far the state deviates on a regular basis, hugely, from the rules it's supposed to be obeying. And so there, it might have some value in the war of ideas simply to, to use as this measure. But again, as a tool to actually restrain the state, obviously it didn't work. And um, a great essay, a great essay in a lot of ways, that can be a paradigm shifter to some people when they read it, is an essay by Murray Rothbard entitled The Anatomy of the State. And I, I think I've probably referred to it on the show a few times before. Um, it's really a good one. And just, just by the way, to give you an idea of how much of a, uh, how much radicalism I'm actually able to get away with in my college classes that I teach in World Civ II, which is world history since 1600, the very first reading assignment that I give to my students is Murray Rothbard's Anatomy of the State. Before we even get into the historical narrative, I give them that to read, just to like right away knock them off balance and challenge their paradigms. And then the remainder of the course is looking at the actual history, because obviously one of the most significant, if not the most significant stories to be found in world history since 1600 is the rise of the modern state. So anyway, one of the interesting of many interesting passages in this essay is a section that is subtitled How the State Transcends Its Limits. So Rothbard writes, quote, As Bertrand de Juvenel has sagely pointed out, through the centuries, men have formed concepts designed to check and limit the exercise of state rule. And one after another, the state, using its intellectual allies, has been able to transform these concepts into intellectual rubber stamps of legitimacy and virtue to attach to its degree decrees, and actions. Originally, in Western Europe, the concept of divine sovereignty held that the kings may rule only according to divine law. The kings turned the concept into a rubber stamp of divine approval for any of the king's actions. 
the concept of parliamentary democracy began as a popular check upon absolute monarchical rule. It ended with Parliament being the essential part of the state and its every act totally sovereign. Similarly, with more specific doctrines, the natural rights of the individual enshrined in John Locke and the Bill of Rights became a statist right to a job. Utilitarianism turned from arguments for liberty to arguments against resisting the state's invasion of liberty, etc. Certainly, the most ambitious attempt to impose limits on the state has been the Bill of Rights and other restrictive parts of the American Constitution, in which written limits on government became the fundamental law to be interpreted by a judiciary, supposedly independent of the other branches of government. All Americans are familiar with the process by which the construction of limits in the Constitution has been inexorably broadened over the last century. But few have been as keen as Professor Charles Black to see that the state has, in the process, largely transformed judicial review itself from a limiting device to yet another instrument for furnishing ideological legitimacy to the government's actions. For if a judicial decree of unconstitutional is a mighty check to government power, an implicit or explicit verdict of constitutional is a mighty weapon for fostering public acceptance of ever greater government power. For while the seeming independence of the federal judiciary has played a vital part in making its actions virtual holy writ for the bulk of the people, it is also an ever true that the judiciary is part and parcel of the government apparatus and appointed by the executive and legislative branches. Black admits that this means that the state has set itself up as a judge in its own cause, thus violating a basic juridical principle for aiming at just decisions. Thus, the state has invariably shown a striking talent for the expansion of its powers beyond any limits that might be imposed upon it. End quote. And also, as Lysander Spooner famously put it in No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, one of the most quoted passages in all of Spooner's writings is this, quote, But whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain, that it has either authorized such a government as we have had, or has been powerless to prevent it. Either way, it is unfit to exist, end quote. So anyway, like I said, I appreciate the intent and the spirit of the Bill of Rights. It was a minor victory for the Anti-Federalists, who were mostly uh, losing drastically in the late 1780s. The Bill of Rights is my favorite part of the Constitution, but again, I'm under no illusions that the government ever has or ever will consistently respect the limits that the Bill of Rights is supposed to be placing on them. I've often argued, I don't know if I have on this show or not, but I've often argued to you know, students in discussions or other people in discussions on this whole concept and the limited at best utility of things like bills of rights, that perhaps we'd be better off if we had a new constitution, a new constitution that was much shorter, much less complicated, complicated and, um, you know, much more honest. In fact, a constitution so short that it could fit on a business card, even with fairly large font. And a constitution in which there would be no illusion of safety and freedom, where there really isn't one. And my proposal for this new constitution is this. This is the entire thing. Are you ready? Quote, the government can do whatever it can get away with. End quote. There it is. That should be the new constitution. And the reason I'm proposing this 
is not because I think it'll suddenly empower them to do whatever they can get away with, because they're already doing that. But my thinking on why this might be a better constitution is there'd be no illusion of safety. There'd be no illusion of rights that are protected and respected. After all, if there's no safety net, like let's say you're walking across a tightrope and there's no safety net under you. If there is no safety net, wouldn't you rather know that there's no safety net instead of operating under the mistaken belief that there is? Because after all, if you think there's a safety net under you, you might be a little careless. If you are aware there's no safety net, you'll probably be more careful. Well, same thing. If you're under the delusion that these rights really matter and really will be respected by people operating under, you know, the name of government, then you're more likely to maybe not take proper precautions. If you understand that, you know, those rights are even less than the supposed guidelines that Jack Sparrow talked about with the Pirate's Code, then you'll be more, you know, realistic in your assessment of what is possible and how safe you and your rights might be. So anyway, I mostly cite the Bill of Rights when I'm illustrating how much the government flat out doesn't obey its own rules. And then I often will pose this question on top of that, which is, in what way should we be morally and or legally obligated to follow rules for us when they don't follow their own rules for themselves? In other words, not that I believe in the idea of a social contract as a, as a valid concept at all, but even if one is in that paradigm, even if one accepts the basic idea of a social contract, and people who do will say our constitution is our social contract. Now, Spooner obliterated that whole thing in the constitution of no authority, no trees in the constitution of no authority, but even, even taking that for the sake of argument and accepting the social contract as, as a real thing and the constitution is, is a manifestation of a social contract, you have to ask the question, since they blatantly violate their end of the contract, right? How can the people be obligated to uphold their side of the contract if the government doesn't remotely uphold and respect its obligations? Can a contract be valid for one party if the other party to the contract just blatantly, repeatedly violates it? Anyway, thanks for the email, Ken, and uh, on to the next one. The next one comes from Justin. Justin writes, Who is the best American president in recent U.S. history? And who is the best American president in U.S. history? In the aftermath of the Jimmy Carter cancer news, Lou Rockwell posted that Jimmy Carter was the best president in his lifetime. This shocked me, although I guess I shouldn't be surprised, because I've grown used to people telling me a president is good or bad based off of folklore propagated by the media. But I have literally never heard anyone ever say anything good about the Carter presidency. In fact, the only time I've ever heard his name brought up in the role of president has been to be used as the epitome of government incompetence. Although I wasn't alive yet, I'm a couple years younger than you are during the Carter administration and never really researched that particular era of history. My own research has led me to conclude that the presidents that are considered the best tend to be the most totalitarian, anti-capitalist, most interventionist presidents. So it stands to reason that the least totalitarian, most capitalist, isolationist presidents would be considered uh, to be the worst. Curious to hear your thoughts on the subject. Thank you, Justin, for the email. And um, yeah, I was actually born during the first year of Reagan's presidency. So I wasn't even around as a baby yet when Carter was still in the White House. And um, I'll, I'll share my thoughts on the presidents that I find the least objectionable and, and why. 
And, and I would point out like, that's the language I would use. I would not say presidents I think are the best, but I would say least worst or least bad or least objectionable. And, um, I did try to look up the Lou Rockwell post that you referred to. And I think I found the one you were talking about. And, uh, interestingly in, in the post, at least the one that I found, Lou Rockwell says the same sort of thing. He says something like Jimmy Carter is the least bad president in my lifetime. So, um, I'm definitely with Lou on, on the same boat, like, by definition, presidents are bad. And so it's not a, it's not so much a matter of who is the best, but who is the least awful or the least, you know, aggressive in violating rights and so on. It's very interesting when you evaluate the presidents based on those who don't grow the state as much based on those who avoid rather than engage in mass death and bloodshed, the whole thing often gets um, turned upside down. The standard notions of who are the great presidents and who are the useless presidents, it gets flipped upside down. And, you know, depending on, on your criteria and what you look at and what you emphasize, you can come to slightly different conclusions. A couple of books I'll mention that are very um, thought-provoking on this topic. One is Reassessing the Presidency, edited, edited, I believe, by John Denson. Huge book. Lots of each chapter is written by a different author and lots of great authors in there. Great, you know, pro pro liberty type people. And um, another one is Re Recarving Rushmore by Ivan Eland. And those are two books I will include in my Amazon affiliate links in the show notes for this episode on profcj.org. Post-World War II, honestly, I would lean towards Dwight Eisenhower. And I certainly acknowledge his, his flaws and his limits and, and the bad stuff that he did or that he allowed to happen. But just mentioning a few of the positives of Dwight Eisenhower, he did end the Korean War. He did actually institute some defense spending cuts overall during his presidency. He was certainly more disciplined, his administration was, on fiscal and monetary policy overall than I think anyone has been since. He did seem to at least have a sense of prudence and the limitations of money and resources, an awareness of these limitations that most other post-World War II presidents seem to have been entirely lacking in. And he, he did cut conventional uh, defense spending in the size of the conventional military. He did make Several good speeches, not just the military-industrial complex speech at the end of his presidency that everyone knows about, but in fact, even early in his presidency, he was making speeches in which he was pointing out, look, the more of our resources and capital and our best scientific minds that we devote entirely to coming up with more devastating weapons, the less all those resources, including those scientific minds, are available for you know humane purposes. And I think I even quoted from one of his early speeches in the episode I did way back um, around New Year's of this year, 2015, on Where's My Hoverboard, a speech where he said, you know, something like, hey, for the, the money that we spend on an aircraft carrier, we could build a whole bunch of hospitals and, you know, stuff like that. Whereas most other post-World War II presidents seem to be completely either ignorant of or unwilling to acknowledge the limitations of reality, the limitations of scarcity of resources, and want to tell you you can have all the guns and all the butter you want simultaneously and there'll be no downside. Well, this is real life. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And Eisenhower may have been the last president who really had at least some understanding of that fact. Now, perhaps in some ways Carter did too. 
I'm just not as familiar with whether Carter um, consistently demonstrated an awareness of the need. If you're in the status paradigm and you're going to have a president and a military and you are going to stand up to the Soviets in the Cold War, within that paradigm, at least being prudent with, like, we can't spend all the money in the universe on the military all the time without negative consequences. Now, some of the things I would say bad about Dwight Eisenhower, um, you know, he's certainly no libertarian, honest, obviously, right? I'm, I'm comparing him to the other post-World War II presidents. He made the New Deal a part of the chiseled-into-stone bipartisan consensus by not really challenging any major aspects of it while he was president. He was the first Republican president after FDR and the New Deal. So a lot of the New Deal programs, you know, were only two decades old or less when he became president. And he was in the White House for eight years and never made any serious attempts that I'm aware of to do anything to reduce or eliminate any of those uh, major New Deal programs. And so that's what happens once the president of the other party comes in. If there have been significant changes in previous administrations, if the new president doesn't undo them, then they're probably going to be immortal. They're probably going to be part of the ironclad bipartisan consensus, and uh, they will not die unless the U.S. government goes down altogether. And of course, um, in many ways, also very morally problematical and has had grave long-term consequences, something I've covered in previous episodes of the show, uh, Eisenhower gave the Dulles brothers and the CIA uh, virtually a blank check to run wild in the third world, playing God, overthrowing governments, etc. A couple examples of this I talked about back in episodes 31 and 32, um, having to do with Iran and Guatemala, but those were not the only two times during Eisenhower's administration that the CIA overthrew a government or tried to. And aside from the moral problems of these actions, and they are significant, you know, in many cases they're overthrowing popularly supported governments that are that are at least trying to institute some reforms to help their people and replacing them with just horrible dictatorships, oftentimes dictatorships that were, you know, into mass murder and torture to keep control. But aside from the moral problems of those actions, there's also all the long-term negative problems both in those countries themselves and uh, in terms of blowback to America in many cases. So, you know, I'm by no means arguing that uh, Dwight Eisenhower was perfect. Again, I'm saying compared to most of the rest of the post-World War II presidents, he's less, less terrible. Now, looking at the last 50 years specifically, I think I might actually agree with Lou on Jimmy Carter. In fact, Jimmy Carter actually did, in many ways, more significant deregulation in his four years than Reagan did in his eight, including uh, a lot of the deregulation of transportation and communication was really done or at least begun under Carter. And it was Carter who appointed Paul Volcker as Fed chairman and then backed Paul Volcker in doing the drastic things that were necessary to bring down inflation to a manageable level. Now, in an ideal libertarian uh, paradigm, you don't have a Federal Reserve, you don't you know, have uh, government-created and government-controlled money. But again, looking at it within the bubble of the status paradigm, right, if you're going to have a federal government and you're going to have something like a, like a central bank, it's preferable from the standpoint of most people's lives if the money is being inflated very slowly than if it's being inflated crazily. So Carter appointed Volcker and then backed Volcker in doing the things that were necessary to bring down that inflation. So again, 
in an ideal libertarian paradigm, even a minarchist one, Carter's not great, to be sure, but when you compare him to a lot of his uh, contemporaries in time, or you know, close, approximate contemporaries, we're talking people like Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan, the Bushes, right? He's really not that bad. And I am one of those people who believes that uh, a disproportionate number of politicians relative to other career groups and uh, you know, just regular people, a disproportionate percentage of politicians are psychopaths. And I honestly believe that a lot of our presidents especially over the last hundred years, have been psychopaths. You know, I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating, flat out. I think the Clintons are probably psychopaths. I think Lyndon Johnson was definitely a psychopath. I don't believe all of our presidents were, were actual psychopaths, but I think some of them have been for sure. Jimmy Carter is one that for all of his flaws, I, I am absolutely certain is not a psychopath. So at least he's got that going for him. Hey, not a psychopath. All right. You know, I think I've made my feelings about Reagan known way back in episode 10. Reagan was all talk, you know, had some great libertarian-sounding rhetoric, but man, totally not there in terms of actual actions. You know, as far as shrinking the federal leviathan, he's all smoke and no fire. Thomas Jefferson was himself in many ways a disappointment as president who didn't live up to his own, you know, rhetoric and ideas. Though he was obviously, to be fair, a shitload better in many ways than um, you know, any president of the last hundred years. Overall, some of the presidents that I would say are the least bad in American history. Some that I would throw out are uh, Grover Cleveland, Martin Van Buren, and Warren Harding. And I might also throw out an honorable mention to William Henry Harrison. And if you don't know why, I'll, I'll let you know in a minute. I'll go through each of these in a little bit of detail. Grover Cleveland was a Gilded Age Democratic president he is the only president in U.S. history to serve two non-consecutive terms, the first from 1885 to 89, and the second from 1893 to 97. Grover Cleveland was a pretty darn staunch proponent of laissez-faire most of the time. His only significant deviation on economic policy from uh, being laissez-faire was he did support the 1887 Interstate Commerce Act to regulate the railroads, which, by the way, the railroads themselves were in favor of because it was going to help them regulate themselves, you know, to up their prices, not to lower them. Cleveland was a guy who vetoed a lot of bills, which, in a lot of cases, I like in a president. He would even veto bills that um, he thought were were um, maybe good ideas, but if he thought they were unconstitutional or if he thought they were somewhat wasteful of the taxpayer's money, he would veto them. And he would also veto bills that were very popular, even when he would obviously pay a um, heavy price. So, for example, during his first term, there was a bill to give really, really, really generous uh, pensions to Civil War veterans. And Cleveland vetoed this, even though he knew it'd be very unpopular with the large numbers of Civil War veterans who were voting at the time. He said it was a government boondoggle, it would be uh, wasteful and abusive, and so on. And so he vetoed it, and it probably was the most important factor that caused him to lose his re-election bid in 1889 to the Republican candidate, Benjamin Harrison, who mainly ran on the idea of, hey, I'll pass the pension bill. Throughout both of his terms, uh, Grover Cleveland, you know, he came back four years later and beat Harrison. Um, throughout both of his terms, Cleveland stood against currency inflation and defended hard money and the gold standard. He tried to get the tariff reduced, although the Republican-dominated Congress prevented him from getting nearly as much done as he wanted on that front, but he did achieve some slight tariff cuts in his second term. And of course, the tariff was 
the main federal tax at the time. So he's fighting to bring that down. Aside from opposing government intervention into the economy, Cleveland also opposed intervention abroad. So, for example, in his second term, he tried to put the brakes on the U.S. seizing control of Hawaii, which was a process that had been begun under Harrison during that, you know, middle term where Cleveland was out of office. Now, unfortunately for the um, self-determination of Hawaii, after Cleveland's second term, William McKinley, much more amenable to this sort of thing, comes in, and McKinley, you know, reignites the process of taking over Hawaii. But Cleveland at least temporarily put the brakes on it. Despite some uh, tough rhetoric, he did settle the Venezuelan border dispute with Britain uh, peacefully, and he took a very firm stand in his second term against having a war with Spain over Cuba, something I, pre- I think I probably talked about back in uh, whatever episode it was where I talked about the Spanish-American War. A lot of the expansionist imperialists in Congress tried to pressure Cleveland into declaring war on um, Spain over Cuba in Cleveland's second term, and Cleveland stood up to them bravely. And, um, of course, you know, it was only temporary. Not not uh, two years later, McKinley's in the White House, and McKinley was uh, much more pliable to the imperialist goals. A few things about Martin Van Buren. There's a book called uh, Reassessing the Presidency, another Mises Institute book. It's edited, I believe, also by John Denson, if I remember right. And um, in that book, Jeffrey Hummel has a chapter in which he makes a strong case for Martin Van Buren as being the most Jeffersonian slash libertarian president in American history. Um, Jackson had um, killed the second bank, but then gave all the government's deposits to state banks, which were not very uh, responsible with the money. And for that and various other reasons, there was a um, financial panic in 1837 at the start of Van Buren's presidency. Van Buren ended up serving only a single term from 1837 to 1841. Van Buren was a New York Democrat who, more than anybody, was behind setting up and organizing the Democratic Party in the uh, late 1820s and early 1830s. He had been Andrew Jackson's secretary of state and vice president and then followed him into the White House. And uh, like as he was taking over, the economy was in shambles. Unemployment was high. It was, I think, the worst uh, economic depression in American history up to that point. And Van Buren, of course, was mired in it for the rest of his presidency. But he did have a couple of positive legacies that uh, Hummel focuses on. And one is he avoided what could have been two significant wars, One was uh, with Britain over the border of Canada, between Canada and Maine. That was a possible war that Van Buren deliberately chose to settle peacefully. And the other potential war that Van Buren um, avoided was a potential war with Mexico over Texas. Texas had won its independence as a Lone Star Republic and was basically throwing itself at the United States, you know, trying to join Team America. And Jackson had started the process of bringing it in at the end of his presidency. Van Buren reversed that, though. Van Buren said no to taking in Texas during his presidency. And he did this in part because he believed it would lead to a war with Texas, which it did when America eventually did bring in, sorry, a war with Mexico, um, if America annexed Texas, which it later did when that happened. And uh, also, Van Buren was worried that bringing in a large southerly latitude state might reignite the whole North versus South thing and cause the country to get at each other's throats again, which it obviously did when Texas was annexed. 
So Van Buren turned down two wars in his presidency, even though the country was in depression and he probably could have used it in terms of his poll numbers to have a war, especially one against Mexico that the U.S. would almost assuredly win. But Van Buren avoided these two wars because in both cases he thought war would be unnecessary and um, it was the right thing to do in his mind to you know, find other means to deal with the problems. The other thing that's a positive legacy of Van Buren is he reformed the banking system, or at least started it. Jackson had not had a good replacement for the national bank, for the government to handle its, uh, its finances. Van Buren came up with an idea known as the Independent Treasury, which I believe Hummel refers to in his chapter of reassessing the presidency as the separation of bank and state. And Hummel says that it wasn't perfect, but it was the best uh, fiscal monetary system that the United States had. I think the independent treasury didn't actually get passed on Van Buren's watch. I think it got passed under his successor, but Van Buren devised it and got the ball rolling. Also, Van Buren dealt with the, um, the depression during his presidency by actually cutting government instead of increasing it to try and stimulate the economy. Even back then, there were people pressuring him to, you know, spend money into the economy and to, um, potentially even bail out certain government-connected businesses that were on hard times. And Van Buren resisted all that, which those of us who are of the Austrian School of Economics mindset on this is the correct thing to do, even though it may not help your poll numbers in the moment. It's actually what's better for the long-term health and recovery of the economy. Negatives of Van Buren, um, one that I'm familiar with that to me is pretty significant is he continued the policy of Indian removal and continued prosecuting the second Seminole war against the Seminole. These are things that I don't think Hummel mentions much, if at all. And to me, these are kind of significant, you know, non-libertarian, non-Jeffersonian, at least Jeffersonian ideals. Now, I guess one could argue back that, well, you almost can't find a 19th century president that didn't have some amount of Indian oppression and Indian war going on on his term. And that may be true. I haven't combed through every single one of them and made a checklist, but you know, to me that's still a pretty significant a pretty significant black mark on on a president from a libertarian standpoint is prosecuting wars against Indians who simply want to live where they live. One more that I'll I'll mention in a little bit of depth is Warren Harding. And uh, in the nineteen twenty election the Republicans nominated Warren Harding of Ohio for president, and he basically ran as the anti-progressive candidate. His campaign slogan was famously, he promised a return to normalcy. And Harding, uh, this is something that's been covered by several uh, libertarian historians, Harding successfully beat a very nasty little depression in the early 1920s by doing little other than cutting taxes and cutting the government's budget. You know, the opposite of what Herbert, Herbert Hoover and later FDR did during the Depression. And unlike the Great Depression, the 1920-21 Depression was over relatively quickly. It was a very nasty, sharp Depression, I believe comparable in many ways to the early phases of the Great Depression. Ironically, at the time, President Harding's Secretary of Commerce, a progressive Republican named Herbert Hoover, opposed Harding's approach of cutting taxes and cutting spending. Hoover wanted to do more to quote-unquote help the economy but Harding did not listen to him at the time. Hoover later does, of course, get his chance to try his ideas from 1929 to 1933, and we know how all that works out. Harding did halt a lot of progressive policies. He essentially stopped the Red Scare, all of the 
prosecution of communists and suspected communists that was already, you know, we think that McCarthyism was the first time this happened. No, it happened uh, at the end of World War One. Harding also let out of prison a lot of people who had been jailed during World War One by the progressive Woodrow Wilson for such innocuous things as things they said or things they wrote. Famously, one of the people Harding let out of prison, whom Woodrow Wilson had not been willing to pardon or commute, was the socialist activist Eugene Debs, who had been thrown in prison by Wilson for giving a speech against World War I. It was the, uh, the much, you know, typically in the mainstream presidential assessments, Harding is considered one of the worst, if not the worst, of all time. And they point to things like, you know, the, the corruption and, and scandals and things like this of his administration, and those things are real, but to me, what's more morally reprehensible, having some graft going on and, you know, some people bribing the Secretary of the Interior to get access to oil on government land or something, is that is that worse? Or is unnecessarily starting a war that gets hundreds of thousands of people killed, is that worse, right? Let's keep these things in perspective. But of course, the conventional rankings of the presidents often rate the ones who get hundreds of thousands of people killed for no good reason as being great or near great presidents and as being decisive, dynamic leaders. And then people like Warren Harding are considered horrible, even though they didn't get hundreds of thousands of people killed anywhere. But, you know, hey, there was a little bit of graft and corruption, which probably is happening in every administration. We just don't always find out about it. Harding was also pretty anti-interventionist on foreign policy. He removed American troops from many parts of Latin America, where they had been sent by uh, Wilson and, and Teddy Roosevelt and people like that, including he pulled American troops out of Haiti. He also engineered a treaty that compensated Colombia for losing the province of Panama. And um, on the international stage, Harding worked for peace and disarmament, for example, he presided over the Washington Naval Conference of 1921 to 22, in which most of the world's most powerful countries agreed upon limits to their navy. Now, you know, we can look back and say this is naive and those governments didn't abide by those restrictions forever. And that's true. But, you know, I, I at least give Harding the credit for his intention to try and stop an arms race from getting out of control. And at that time, battleships were like the super weapons. So unfortunately, Harding's presidency is primarily remembered today by mainstream historians for its scandals. Harding was, you know, it was kind of an open secret that he was a social drinker. This is, of course, during Prohibition. And it was kind of an open secret as well that he was a philanderer. And there was, of course, the Teapot Dome scandal, which occurred uh, on his watch, in which some government-owned oil reserves were opened up to private interests because of a bribe to the Secretary of the Interior, um, a lot of these these scandals, though, like Teapot Dome, didn't make news until uh, Harding was dead and gone. So my understanding is that for the most part, Harding was was a popular president while he was alive. Harding died in August of 1923, you know, before even completing a full term of a heart attack, and his vice president Calvin Coolidge became president. And Harding really was the last Republican president, as far as I know, to significantly cut back the overall size of government during his term. He certainly didn't undo all of the progressive era policies, but he did temporarily halt a lot of them and maybe undid a little bit of them. And so he was at least better than most recent Republicans who talk about cutting back Leviathan, but then tend to grow it even more faster than the Democrats. And I'll link in the show notes another amusing fact about Harding is relatively recently some letters 
uh, from him to his mistress were made public. And it's very interesting reading. Let's just put it that way. And to me, one of the most amusing parts in the whole thing is that Warren Harding apparently referred to his penis as Jerry. And so he's writing to his mistress, making references to, oh, Jerry misses you too. And uh, at times he even refers to his penis as Mount Jerry. So there you go. And his name is already Harding, right? I mean, as if Harding doesn't, doesn't already sound like enough of a porn star name. He's got to also be, you know, naming his wiener and writing about it in letters. By the way, it's less bad than Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson named his penis Jumbo and was fond of showing it to people all the time. So by comparison, Harding making occasional, you know, flirtatious references to Jerry in his love letters is uh, the model of class and restraint. Now, one more honorable mention I'll make of a president that I do have a soft spot for as well is the Whig Party president, William Henry Harrison, who ran in 1840 with the running mate John Tyler, and this is the famous Tippecanoe and Tyler II campaign slogan. They successfully defeated Martin Van Buren, which wasn't too hard because the economy was so crappy. But what happened was William Henry Harrison comes into office having won the election, but during the campaign, some people had criticized and questioned his age. He was the oldest American to be elected president at that until that time. And so the story is that when uh, William Henry Harrison was getting ready to give his inaugural speech. It's a bitterly cold spring day in D.C., unseasonably cold, and he decides to go ahead and give his inaugural address outside and to show everybody that he is not old and decrepit, that he's still hale and hearty. He gives the speech outside without a heavy hat or overcoat or anything to keep him warm. And he gives one of the longest uh, inaugural addresses in American history. I think it was like several hours. And sure enough, just like your mom says, you know, when it's cold, um, he gets a cold. It apparently turns into pneumonia and the guy dies after being president for about a month. And for that month, he's bedridden sick. So one of the reasons I like William Henry Harrison is because I don't think there should be a president. I think the concept of president is absurd. And so I have a soft spot for a guy who was only in the office for about a month and who spent that month not really doing much. And I've often wondered if we'd be better off if we had sort of a weekend at Bernie's president, right? Just have a dead dude. I believe it was the Incans who actually would have dead kings. They'd have like a mummified, you know, guy of the royal family who had died would be their king. And maybe we'd be better if, the, if we had a, a weekend at Bernie's president where, you know, the, they just kind of like carry him out to, to, uh, sit and watch parades and you know a secret service guy has the job of waving his arm at the crowd that sort of thing and might be something worth considering just just throwing that out there anyway of those presidents that i mentioned that i have you know some less hatred for than the others it's hard to rank them it's hard to rank them it's hard to say you know totally number one i suppose if you uh were to just force me to, I might have to say Cleveland, but I don't know. But thanks for the question, Justin. On to the next one. Okay, and my remaining two questions for this episode are questions that, they're great questions, but they're ones that I can probably answer a little bit more concisely than the first two. So the next email comes from Buffalo Jim, and Buffalo Jim asks, what are your thoughts and opinions on file sharing 
downloading torrents, live streaming of movies on the internet, etc., do you feel the industries are approaching this issue in a constructive way? Thanks for the question, Buffalo Jim. And first off, as I've probably said on this show multiple times, I am the first to admit I am not the most technologically savvy guy around. I mean, it's basically a miracle that I can record, edit, and upload my episodes and run my website. Like, sometimes I can't even believe that I can do that just because I'm I'm so um, not that much of a tech guy. But um, that said, I do I do have you know, some thoughts and opinions on, on these trends and sort of looking at them as a phenomenon and the, the context historically of where things might be going. And I think a lot of this has to do with the question of intellectual property, which I'm the first to admit, I'm not a huge expert on. I'm not one of those people like uh, maybe Stefan Kinsella who can approach this in a very philosophical and, and uh, legal sort of a framework. But I will say that when I was younger, and I, and I was still more of like a minarchist, conservatarian type in that gray zone, gray zone, I vigorously supported the concept of intellectual property because I just accepted it as a valid type or subspecies of private property. And of course, as a minarchist conservatarian, I, I liked private property. But as I became more of an individualist anarchist, you know, still liking the idea of private property but getting much more literate with real economics and much more um, philosophically consistent, I gradually realized that uh, IP is basically a form of rent-seeking used by large corporations, um, you know, using the state as a tool by which to artificially enrich themselves beyond what they would normally get in a competitive market setting. Now, if anyone listening is not familiar with this term rent-seeking in the economic context, right? In economics, rent-seeking refers not to, like, paying rent, right, making payments on a lease, but rent-seeking comes from public choice economic theory. It refers to those who would use state power to secure to themselves higher incomes than what they would normally earn in a competitive free market. So I'll just quote Wikipedia's definition of rent-seeking, which I believe actually comes from an IMF paper on the idea. Quote, In economics and in public choice theory, rent-seeking involves seeking to increase one's share of existing wealth without creating new wealth. Rent-seeking results in reduced economic efficiency through poor allocation of resources, reduced actual wealth creation, lost government revenue, increased income inequality, and potentially national decline, end quote. This is one of those things where it harms the economy as a whole, but it does so in a dispersed way, and it benefits only a small group of special interests who are the ones, you know, lobbying the government for whatever rules or laws are helping them in their rent-seeking mission. But those benefits to those special interests are very concentrated and to them very significant. And this is why public choice theory is so valuable in helping people to understand why the state does what it does in terms of economic policy. Because very often the state does things that don't make rational sense. If you're looking at it from the perspective of like the economy as a whole, things like farm subsidies and so on, right? You look at them and go, that's hurting the economy as a whole in a bunch of ways. Yeah, but those costs are dispersed amongst the whole economy, amongst basically the whole population while the benefits are then concentrated 
um, into that special interest. So anyway, um, in my own intellectual journey, I've come to the conclusion that the concept of intellectual property as understood and interpreted and enforced by the state is essentially uh, rent seeking in, in a way, almost kind of like a form of corporate welfare. And it is what is allowed over the course of the 20th century, these gigantic media mega conglomerations to emerge and to stay shielded from true competitive market forces in a lot of cases. And there are other types of state uh, regulations and interventions into the economy that help support these giant media and entertainment corporations. But uh, intellectual property is clearly one of the most important tools in their toolbox. So when I look at all these new things coming along in the technological realm, things like what Buffalo Jim mentioned in the question, I confess I don't always quite understand all of the technical aspects of these things, but it looks to me in like the big picture historical context, like what's happening is technology and the market. And in some cases, even the gray market we're talking about here, right? Technology and the market are finding a way around these barriers. And it's yet another case where the technology could be potentially what enables people to grab more freedom even when the state and uh, the, the corporate special interests they're always in bed with don't want you to. Sometimes they just can't stop it practically. And I think when you see mega corporations lashing out to try and stop or control these sorts of uh, technologies and these practices, it's typical of a you know giant dinosaur institution that is under threat due to you know, changes in the environment that are threatening its ability to live the way it used to and that are actually, to keep the metaphor going, making it more advantageous to be a small, nimble mammal now that the climate and things are changing than to be a big, huge dinosaur. And this is going on uh, in many ways. It's going on in terms of the so-called new media or alternative media. It's going on in terms of uh, increasing decentralization and the ability to create and distribute both informational media and also entertainment. And I think the companies that are coming to grips with it and doing so in a better and more constructive way are the companies that are doing the best and the ones that are more likely to survive these changes. So just to throw out a couple of examples, Netflix and Hulu, I think, are probably going to be doing well for the foreseeable future because they have figured out how to provide an enormous amount of content for a very modest price. And I, I've got an account both with Netflix and with Hulu, and I no longer have cable. The only thing I get from, from my cable company is, uh, is my high-speed internet, but I don't get cable TV from them anymore. And they were you know, a clear example of a dinosaur company that is buttressed by the state and allowed to charge quasi-monopoly prices because of state protection. And I looked at, you know, what content I get from Netflix and Hulu for a tiny, tiny fraction of what I was paying every month for cable. And not only do I have infinitely more content at my fingertips now, able to be watched on any device, but there's much more flexibility in terms of time. You know, I don't have to watch any commercials. I don't have to wait for something to you know, be recorded or be on demand or whatever, uh, you know, if I don't watch something when it's actually on. And I don't even have to worry about skipping or fast forwarding commercials. So, 
you know, whatever their, their business model and practices are, I, I don't know, but for however they did it, Hulu and Netflix have figured out a way to provide a massive amount of content for a very, very modest monthly fee. And I expect as long as they're able to keep figuring out how to do that, they're going to keep being successful. And the companies that are not able to do that are, you know, their, their days are numbered. And I think that's what you'll see going forward is you'll see the more uh, hidebound, more dinosauric of the companies are going to keep trying to use the state to buttress their position. And in some cases, they'll have temporary success. And in some cases, they won't. But I think the long term trend is against them. Barring something like a complete government, you know, dictatorial seizure of the Internet, I don't think they can uh, fight a rearguard action forever. And I think you'll see that the other companies that are adapting more quickly to all these new technologies are um, they're, they're going to continue to make money because, yeah, you can probably if you're willing to to go sort of, you know, pirates and, and that sort of thing, you can probably find whatever you're watching on Netflix or Hulu for free somewhere somehow. But considering how inexpensive Netflix and Hulu are, a lot of people, including me, would rather just, you know, pay 10 bucks a month or whatever and be able to watch whatever. And, I, you know, personally, I don't mind forking over a little bit of money to somebody for content. Like, to me, that's, that's okay. If I appreciate the service, I'm happy to do it. You know, I ask you all to chip in if you're willing and able to uh, for the content I provide. But I think there's also the case of, like, you know, what is a reasonable uh, market-determined price versus what is a price that is caused by rent-seeking corporations using the state. And I think that ultimately technology is just going to win the day here, most likely. And there's a generational thing going on too. You look at the younger generation. I'm in my mid-30s. People who are my age or younger are intrinsically much more uh, skeptical of the whole concept of intellectual property. People who are you know, especially even a little bit younger than me think it is absolutely absurd that somebody will you know, launch a huge lawsuit against you for using a little snippet of their song without getting permission or paying a royalty. So I, I think that the concept of intellectual property is going to die simply because of the practical advances in technology. So overall, the, these advances, I'm thrilled by them. I think they're great. I think they're a wonderful case of counter-economics or sort of agorism in the high-tech world of the market is just simply racing ahead as it sometimes does to the delight of those of us who value freedom, the market is racing ahead. The technology is racing ahead of the ability of power to ring it in. Now, power might catch up, power might not, but um, it's still nice to at least see the market running ahead for the time being. So anyway, th those are my thoughts. I see it as a very exciting thing. It's right up there, this, you know, all the peer-to-peer -peer technologies, all the ways around the old systems, you know, not worrying about trying to abolish the old systems, but simply building new ones that go around them. Things like Bitcoin and so on being other manifestations of this. Um, I think it's very exciting, very exciting. And there's a lot of great potential. So those are my thoughts. Again, don't I don't have a whole lot to say on the technical aspects of those things just because that's not my not my bag. But thanks for the question, Buffalo Jim. Last question for today comes from Ray and Ray asks, what are your thoughts on objectivism and Ayn Rand? Do you think she's some sort of false prophet of capitalism? My response, uh, first off, to the, the second part of the question, I would say yes, she is a false prophet of capitalism in a lot of ways. Uh, again, if by capitalism, you know, people always mean different things when they say capitalism. If by capitalism here we mean the truly free competitive market, then yes. To me, in many ways, 
Ayn Rand is one of those people who I think damages the brand of libertarianism and the free market because to many mainstream people who think that Ronald Reagan was some kind of like libertarian, to those sorts of people, Ayn Rand equals libertarianism and libertarianism equals Ayn Rand. And this to me is either a tragic error or perhaps in some cases a deliberate smear. I have very mixed feelings on Ayn Rand. Like a lot of people, I discovered her writings when I was a teenager, and there seems to be something about Ayn Rand's um, ideas and the way she presents them that are very appealing to, in particular, young men. Men in their teens and 20s, right? Especially young men who are um, sort of above average in IQ and have some trouble fitting in with kind of the, the masses around them. Such men, and I was one of them when I was in that age bracket, seem to be really drawn to Ayn Rand because she seems to be blatantly saying things that you've always thought. And it's appealing to see in, in a published book someone saying the things you've kind of thought or felt on a gut level but not had the nerve or not known how to, to express. And I actually don't disagree with very much of Ayn Rand's basic philosophy, with her epistemology and metaphysics and, and a lot of the, the conclusions she draws from that. I don't really disagree with those things. But I have lots of problems with Ayn Rand, though, beyond just the basic building blocks of her, her philosophy. Number one, I'll say that uh, I think she is not a good fiction writer from a literary standpoint. And yeah, I know Atlas Shrugged has sold a bajillion copies and had, had an influence on a lot of people, and I'm not denying that. I'm just saying personally, from just a purely literary standpoint, I don't find her novels to be very good works of literature. I don't think they're well written. I think the characters are, in most cases, one-dimensional cardboard cutouts. I think the dialogue is terrible. I think that it's absurd to have people speaking in 20-page philosophical dissertations because even people who are into philosophy don't talk that way. It's painful to read. The books are too ham-fistedly didactic. You can write books that incorporate philosophical ideas and, and make your make your points known via fiction, but when to me, when you do it that ham-fistedly, you're being that blatantly didactic, it's to me, at least, it is just not appealing. So even when I was in my teens and early 20s and I was into Ayn Rand, even back then, I preferred her nonfiction writing. When she was just writing about philosophy, I preferred that stuff to her fiction writing. I, I found that to just not be very good fiction. In order for fiction to, to work, it's got to be kind of believable. And I, I don't find her fiction believable. Other problems with Ayn Rand, as I learned more about her as an individual and her personality and her relationships and so on, I was very much disgusted by a lot of it. This, the whole cult thing that she clearly had going on, you know, drinking her own Kool-Aid, having this, uh, circle of, of flunkies, of lackeys, really just stuff that turned me off on a personal level, level to learn about this. Ayn Rand, I think in a lot of cases is, uh, trying to act like a lot of her ideas she invented purely out of her own head, even though she's clearly building upon or modifying the ideas of others. And I don't like people who don't give credit to those whose ideas they're, they're using or building upon. Again, I, I don't believe in intellectual property. I don't think you should have to pay anybody royalties for using their ideas. But I think it's a matter of just kind of basic, I don't know, courtesy, manners, humility, something, some combination of those things to when you're using someone else's 
ideas or you're building off of someone else's philosophy that they wrote about before you or something to at least give a tip of the hat and say, well, I got this uh, concept from this guy and, and then I maybe took it in this direction, built on it, whatever. And she didn't do that very much. She occasionally gave a tip of the hat to Aristotle or Aquinas, but I don't think she acknowledged nearly as much as she should have if she was being honest the um, intellectual debt she owed to many people who came before her. And another thing I'll say against Ayn Rand is that she obviously, when it comes to her specific political positions, did not always have political positions that were in keeping with the um, implications of her own philosophy. So if you take all of her ideas and work them out consistently, to me, you end up at individualist anarchism. And that's not where Ayn Rand ended up in in real world uh, political beliefs and advocacy. She ended up, in fact, being quite a neoconish hawk on foreign policy, and uh, many of her intellectual errors have also been this way, right? The Ayn Rand Institute is very hawkish, uh, pro-military, interventionist, very much supporter of U.S. wars, basically think the U.S. has the right to make war on anybody just because the U.S. might be arguably a little bit more free market or something than the countries it's attacking, most of the modern-day Ayn Rand followers, I believe, supported things like the war in Iraq. They also oftentimes are huge uh, supporters of Israeli militarism. And these are not things that, to me, are philosophically consistent with Ayn Rand's own stated philosophy. So she was a statist, even though her ideas would seem to indicate that that's not what one should be. She also has some significant gaps in her historical knowledge. And just one example, she often portrayed... Big business in American history as always being um, a creature of the free market and as being generally pro-free market. She, in, in many ways, had kind of a blind eye, I think, to whether deliberately or unintentionally, I don't know. But she she had a blind eye towards the fact that, in fact, for most of American history, most big business interests have been very much pro-government intervention in the economy. And plenty of other better scholars have shown this up, down, and sideways. And and there are other instances you can find in her historical analyses and uh, statements that are just clearly, you know, she didn't, she didn't know history as well as she probably should have in order to be making some of the claims she was making about history, put it that way. So when I encountered Ayn Rand, I had some, you know, connection to her ideas. Some of her ideas certainly made sense to me, but I always felt like, there were there were still some significant problems and contradictions and so on. And and I do have to say, I like The Fountainhead a lot better than Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged is, to my eyes, not a good novel, even though I actually agree with a lot of the ideas in it. Again, from a literary standpoint, it doesn't work for me. But it was absolutely a breath of fresh air for me when I discovered Murray Rothbard. I was probably in my mid-twenties when I first started to encounter Rothbard. And I can't even remember where or how I first bumped into something written by him. But it was immediately a breath of fresh air. It was, it was sort of like, this is what I've been looking for. Now, again, I try not to really hero worship anybody. And I certainly have some things I think that Rothbard uh, got wrong or things that I disagree with him on regarding some of his historical analysis and so on. But I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to have someone who's, in many ways, someone that I'm inspired by and whose ideas are largely congruent with my own, it would have to be somebody like Rothbard, much more so than Ayn Rand. 
And I even think Rothbard was the better writer. Even though Rothbard wrote almost no fiction in his life, he wrote uh, Mozart was a red, that famous one act play making fun of the objectivists. Other than that, I don't know if he wrote any other fiction, but he still was a much better writer than Ayn Rand. Rothbard was able to write about history and economics and philosophy in ways that are very, very readable. And oftentimes with a very, um, a very skillful wit, you can tell he's somewhat inspired by somebody like H.L. Mencken. And unlike Ayn Rand, Rothbard had a truly deep understanding of history. Rothbard understood that the ideas he was putting together, that he was standing on the shoulders of giants. And Rothbard was always eager to give credit to his intellectual forebears and to, when he was building on or improving on their ideas, to still give them credit for providing the basis. And that was um, refreshing from Ayn Rand acting like she invented all this stuff almost entirely on her own. I found Rothbard, again, I can find a few specific areas where I disagree with something that he said or a position he took. But in the big picture of things, I found Rothbard much more consistent in following his ideas to their logical conclusions and in being, you know, anti-war and so on. And unlike Ayn Rand, even though I believe um, if there was any way to test it, that Rothbard was was more intelligent than Ayn Rand, was a much more brilliant guy than Ayn Rand. He never, as far as I've been able to tell, and I've, you know, heard what people have said or, or read what people have written who knew him, and I've read a few uh, biographies of him and stuff like that, from all that I've been able to tell, he never was a cult leader type in any way, the way Ayn Rand was, even though he was arguably more brilliant. He remained a fairly humble guy, had a good sense of humor, you know, could laugh at himself and even even poke fun at his own ideas on occasion. He seems like he was a really likable, good guy. So that was something else that stood out to me is when I learned about him as a person, he was much more um, of a better person in my eyes than Ayn Rand was. And, and I have to say, when I when I learned about the interactions that Rothbard had with Ayn Rand and her group, and I found out about the way that they, they treated him, um, it really just, you know, sealed the deal even more in my eyes that if I was going to look up to anybody and be inspired by anybody's ideas, it would be much more towards Rothbard than towards Ayn Rand. Rothbard was a guy who understood that there were honest people among the left, people who aren't just thoughtless party hacks, who actually had had important points that they were making about some important things, such as corporatism being bad and such as war and the military industrial complex being bad. And so Rothbard appreciated even quote unquote leftists such as Gabriel Kolko and William Appleman Williams. And this gave Rothbard's writings and ideas much more depth and I don't know, more of a, of a complexity, but in a, in a philosophically consistent manner that, Ayn Rand, a lot of times in her political analyses and historical analyses, was dealing in very kind of simplified caricatures of reality, whereas Rothbard seems to have been much better at grasping complexity and subtlety of reality, and yet still sticking to much more consistent philosophical benchmarks. So anyway, yes, I would say that objectivism and Ayn Rand have some merits, but that they have significant uh, shortcomings and gaps and inconsistencies and problems. I think you could maybe make the case that there's some value to some of her work as almost like a gateway drug, but I think it's important to try to get those 
again, often younger folks and, and more often than not men, uh, young men who are drawn to her work to try and then, you know, get them onto better stuff. If that's the gateway drug, fine. Like the saying goes, it usually starts with Ayn Rand, but um, I would say that if it if it never goes beyond that, that um, that's not good. That someone's intellect is stunted if they stay in those uh, in those woods. And yet, I would consider her in some ways a false prophet of of uh, the free market and of libertarianism. And I would say, in that regard, even though she's a very different person and uh, her ideas are somewhat different, that she does kind of remind me of another Rand. In this case, of course, I'm talking about Rand Paul, who damages the brand of libertarianism by being identified with it, even though he's not a consistent libertarian at all, and has publicly said he's not one, which, by the way, Ayn Rand also said she's, she was not a libertarian. And yet in both cases of Ayn Rand and Rand Paul, they are often trotted out by the muggles as the you know, poster people of libertarianism. And that's, that's a, either a tragic error or a deliberate, you know, misleading or maybe both. So, yeah, I think it's always important to try to, however one can disassociate people who don't accurately portray and live up to the ideas that they're associated with from that brand or from that banner. And in the case of Rand Paul, I mean, not only is he clearly not anything resembling a consistent libertarian, you know, he's not even in the same category as his father on any of this, but he's not even an effective politician. Like, he's selling out, and it's not even gaining him any votes. So I, I do not know what to make of that guy, but he's, uh, he's not accomplishing anything worthwhile at all. And um, I, I can only hope that some of the people who've really been in the tank for Rand Paul are starting to realize that... You know, there are much better things you can do with your time and, and energy and money and resources than keep uh, pursuing the conventional political path, especially, you know, it's one thing when it was Ron Paul and you could at least make the argument that he's doing something good by consistently espousing liberty ideas and that he's performing an educational role. Like I can buy that because Ron Paul performed a role like that for me. Ron Paul was was a, a milestone along my way to becoming more and more radical for liberty. So I can get that. But Rand isn't even doing that. So, you know, I, I hope that more people who are really in the tank for Rand will really rethink things, especially after his so far extremely uninspiring performances in the debates. I have not had the stomach to watch any of the debates all the way through. But, you know, I've watched snippets and whatever. And um, Rand Paul is just not really worth a damn so far. So it, it's pretty sad if you're selling out consistent principles and you're not even gaining votes from doing so. Like, that's, to me, the worst of both worlds. So anyway, those are my thoughts on Ayn Rand, you know, the short version of my thoughts. And thanks again overall to Ken, Justin, Buffalo Jim, and Ray, all of them for their email questions. And if any of you listening would like to ask me a question, feel free to email me. It's profcj at profcj.org. The types of questions I like are sort of like the ones that I had this time. Questions that are, you know, clear what the question is, but that are the types of questions that you could spend a little bit of time digging into. Questions that don't have super simple answers. And so um, if you want me to answer one of your questions, send it to that email address. And of course, my editorial final judgment on which questions I actually answer on the air. But if you've got a good question that's not too similar to one I've already answered in the past, I might just take your question too. Remember to check out the website 
profcj.org for the show notes and links and all sorts of other things. Remember, you can connect with the show and follow it on Facebook and Twitter. You could subscribe to the show in a variety of ways, including via iTunes and via Stitcher. Remember, there are multiple ways you can help the show if you enjoy it. One is to spread the word about it any way you can to people you think might like it. And big thank you to all of you who have done that. Since I've started the Dangerous History Podcast, a lot of you have done great work helping to spread the good word of the show. Also, you might consider leaving a review or a rating in a venue like iTunes or Stitcher. And of course, you can help the show financially. I always appreciate that very much. You can donate directly. Go to profcj.org slash donate. And you can donate via PayPal or Bitcoin. Or like I said at the beginning of the show, you can sign up to be a supporter of the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash profcj. And of course, the last way you can help out the show financially is by, if you're going to go shop on Amazon, go through my website first, use one of my affiliate links to enter Amazon. And if you buy anything on Amazon, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, but you do it after going through one of my links to get to Amazon, I get a little bit of a commission and it's no extra cost to you. It comes out of Amazon's end of the transaction. Huge thank yous to everyone who's donated or bought stuff via my Amazon links recently. And of course, thanks to everyone who's supporting me via Patreon. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I hope that you've found these questions and answers uh, useful and thought-provoking. Um, as I'm recording this tomorrow, I should be, barring any technical snafus, beginning my conversation with Bill Bupert of ZeroGov.com about the history of irregular warfare. Should be a fascinating discussion. I'm very much looking forward to it. I hope you're looking forward to listening to it. So look for that to be uh, at least begun in the next episode of the show after this one. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 